today I'm uh, beginning a review of the book of 1 Samuel. Let's see if my phone will cooperate. There we are. Kingdom Come, a review of 1 Samuel. This is a, uh, a different sort of message, and if you're trying to take notes, it'll be a different sort of uh, outlining method, but I, I pray it'll be useful for you. If you'd like to have your Bible open to a passage, uh, one that we will look at in a little while is going to be 1 Samuel chapter 2. That's one of uh, several passages we'll look at. Now this last week uh, was the conclusion of something very momentous in the United Kingdom, the close of the Platinum Jubilee of QE2, Queen Elizabeth II. And she was forced to ride around in that very uncomfortable carriage for part of the week. <laughs> 250-year-old gilded carriage that is only used on uh, very rare events. They are celebrating that she's been on the throne for 70 years. That is an amazing tenure. Now, this is something I've observed before, that we as Americans are happy that we don't live under the crown, but we're still fascinated by it. There are some Americans who know more about the British royal family than there are some Britons know about it. Um, we're glad we have a constitution and we have elections and the like, but, you know, as Christians, regardless of what nation we live in, we have another royal interest that should be of far greater significance because we are part of the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is a kingdom which is in a period of transition. It was initiated at his first coming and it will be consummated at his second coming. It exists now, as some theologians would say, in a mystery form. But this concept of the kingdom of God is really one of the great unifying themes of Scripture. I'll say more about how the idea of kingdom is mentioned even in the very first chapter of the Bible, and it's something that is celebrated in the very last one. In one sense, we could say that the kingdom of God is an eternal heavenly reality, but God's kingdom on earth has been progressing and developing following a plan. And this plan includes many twists and turns, tragedies and triumphs, rises and falls. And the books of Samuel, which we've been studying together these last two years, describes an important stage in the development of God's kingdom on earth. Here's a thought we'll use to hang our study on this morning. The books of Samuel reveal how God's ancient promise plan transforms his chosen people into a kingdom. That's one of the things that's so important about these books of Samuel. Now, we're not done with this series. We, are, we have finished 1 Samuel, and when I return it for my cycle in the pulpit in a couple months, we'll be back to 2 Samuel. But this is a good spot to, to kind of tap the brakes and look back at what we have studied. Uh, I counted up that uh, there have been, to this point, before today, 45 sermons on 1 Samuel, uh, and then some overview studies in the evening hour, and then there's some side studies on Psalms that were related to them, and uh, there will be a test next week. Uh, no, we're not, not going to do that to you. Uh, I'm going to try to gather up. I feel like I'm out in a field picking up uh, wood and things, and I've got it, and things are falling out of my hand. So in that sense, this might feel more like a mess than a message. 
but I, I, I think it's going to be helpful for us. So two simple points that we'll uh, use to navigate this review is firstly, why are we studying Samuel? I've alluded to some of that. And secondly, what have we learned so far? Why are we studying Samuel? Well, it is part of the Bible's mainline story. This is a really integral part of the Old Testament. Now, if you were to ask someone on the street to name the books of the Bible, uh, you might get, <laughs> you might not get any, but if you did, you, you might get Genesis, you might get Revelations, you know, even though they've got, got to get rid of the S there, and maybe Psalms or Matthew. Almost nobody is going to say Samuel. First and second Samuel do not rank up there in people's minds as being all that important. And yet, the stories in this part of Scripture run through the backbone of the Bible. And not just those great stories like David and Goliath, but the, the establishment of the kingdom within Israel and the royal line of David. The Bible looks back to this portion of Scripture again and again and again. Isaiah, the prophet, listen to this, Isaiah 55, 3. The Lord says, Incline your ear and come to me. Listen that you may live. I will make an everlasting covenant with you according to the faithful mercy shown to David. Ah, there is Isaiah, hundreds of years later, looking back to what happened in David as vital to what's going to take place in the future. Uh, Jesus refers to David and David's line again and again, the apostles again and again. It is an integral part of the Bible. The backbone of the Bible, you could say, is made of the different covenants that God initiated with key people. The first thing that is labeled as a covenant is that great covenant God made with Noah, where he demonstrated that he had an intention to bring blessing to the whole world. The, the world would not be overthrown as it had been before. But there would be seed time and harvest. There would be seasons. There would be a regularity. God was not planning to, every, you know, 100 years or so, just destroy it all and start again. God had a gracious intention for the world. It wasn't made clear what it was, but his intentions were spelled out. And the next major thing called a covenant was made with Abraham, where God chooses one man out of the world and says, through you, I will make it so that all the nations of the world will be blessed. Uh, the great family would come from him, uh, great seed and great blessing. And then some of the descendants of Abraham meet with God at Mount Sinai, where the, the covenant that looms the largest over the Old Testament is announced, that God tells them that he's going to do something with them as a people that he has not done since the Garden of Eden. I will dwell with you and be in your midst. But the terms of God dwelling with them and them not being destroyed by his holiness is the covenant at Mount Sinai, which includes the law, the Ten Commandments, and all the many laws that are connected with that. God has a plan to dwell with Israel, to turn them from being just a people into a nation. And then the next major person who receives a covenant of real earth-shaking significance is David. And it's in these books, the books of 1 and 2 Samuel. God plans to, take his, to make his people from not just being a nation, but to be a kingdom through whom God will bring tremendous blessing to the world. 
and then the last covenant, which is spoken of in the Old Testament, and we see it initiated in the New, is the New Covenant, God's plan to redeem His people and to fulfill all the other everlasting promises that He has made. We are in an in-between time now. The New Covenant has been initiated, and yet the majority of the house of Israel has not entered into it. We have been grafted into God's gracious plan uh, in this period which Daniel spoke so much about. The books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings, those series of books are all kind of tightly wound together. They, They tell us what Israel's history was like under the covenant made at Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai looms over all of those books. And mostly, those books are a history of failure. Israel failing to keep the covenant, breaking the law again and again. But in the middle of that history, God has start something new, a new covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7, verse 16, Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And when David reflects upon that, those promises of God many years later, he says in 2 Samuel 23, 5, He, God, has made an everlasting covenant with me. A new plan, a kingdom plan, made alive in the days of David. It's part of the Bible's mainline story. And also, the books of Samuel are foundational to God's earthly kingdom. It rekindles uh, uh, kingdom promises that had been made long before. Um, sometimes we, we wrongly think that Israel was completely wrong to want a king. Uh, Samuel does indict them for, for wanting what they want, the way they want it, but their problem was more the kind of king that they wanted and the timing of getting their king. Because earlier on in the Old Testament, there are explicit statements that God intends to rule in the earth, through people even. I mean, how about chapter 1 of Genesis, when God puts Adam and Eve in the garden, and he says, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Adam and Eve were intended to be rulers. There's the concept of kingdom and the very first story of the Bible. And then in Genesis 17, 6, repeated in chapter 35, verse 11, promises made to Abraham that he says, kings shall come forth from you. And then in Genesis 49, the prophecy made over Judah says that the scepter, the ruler's mace, shall not depart from Judah. Uh, God has a kingdom plan, and it was cryptic and unclear how it would come about. But as the Torah goes on, as you go into Exodus, you see God telling Israel in Exodus 19.6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests. You see Balaam, that terrible man who is a false prophet who is nonetheless inspired to speak what is true on some occasions. Numbers 24.7 prophesies about Israel and their leader, his kingdom shall be exalted. And then at the end of Moses' life in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 17, verse 15, he gives instructions about when they get a king, this is the kind of king he should be. You shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. Ah, there was a kingdom plan. This kingdom is wished for in the book of Judges. How many times do we hear throughout the book of Judges 
there was no king in Israel in those days. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So when we come to the books of Samuel, there's something glorious that's afoot. God is beginning to make something of his people. He's beginning to bring fulfillment to words that have been uttered centuries before. It rekindles the kingdom promises. It paves the way for Messiah also. Uh, Messiah is a term for an anointed one. And there are various anointed ones in the books of Samuel, be they priests or even kings like Saul and then David. And these are all great men in different ways. But it's clear that they are also disappointments to one degree or another. Much of 1 Samuel is about the fall of Saul. And what a royal disappointment he turns out to be. Most of 2 Samuel is about the fall of David. After the first 10 chapters, which are pretty glorious, then it gets tarnished quite a bit. And it creates this appetite for who, who is going to bring these kingdom promises to their fulfillment. The promises that God made to David were so universal, so comprehensive, it birthed a longing for someone to come fill these shoes. And so Isaiah will speak of the house of David this way, Isaiah 9, 7. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on then forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Someone will come and fulfill all these things that have been failed. And the New Testament makes it abundantly clear it is Jesus who brings to fulfillment all the things promised to David. Another aspect of this being so foundational to the earthly kingdom is that these stories in the books of Samuel teach about God's power in performing his plan. Now there's all kinds of stories with lessons that we've gone through, lessons of good examples to follow and bad examples to avoid, but you know that's not really the main purpose of these books. It's not to create Sunday school flannel graphs, as helpful as those can be. There's a more fundamental message through all of those stories, and it is this, that God is the ultimate king. God is the sovereign of the ages. He has a plan, which includes a will that he has declared for people to follow, and he has a sovereign power at work behind the scenes to bring about his plan. The greatest blessings come in living in alignment with his declared will. God's power to orchestrate things, even when people don't follow his will, is displayed again and again and again throughout the book. Um, there are, for instance, some doubled-up stories. There are at least ten pairs of stories where it seems like, hey, didn't this happen already? Things like Saul prophesies with the prophets early in the book, and then he does again later in his life. Samuel rejects Saul in chapter 13 and again in chapter 15. Saul chucks a spear at David once and a few years later again. David twice escapes Saul's clutches. David twice spares Saul's life. These are just some of them. These are, these are not literary fictions. These are, these are orchestrated by the hand of God to show that he is at work. It's not, these are not one-off kinds of things that God is able to perform again and again to accomplish what he wants. Another part of the divine power is how, as the stories unfold, there's this tremendous irony 
loads of irony. You think iron is heavy. <laughs> Wait till you see the irony in the book of Samuel. That was a really bad joke, I admit. Uh, as I looked through my notes over the last couple of years, I found that I highlighted, just in my teaching, 18 different passages where there was strong irony. And I, and I didn't share all those with you. Things like what we saw last week. Saul is up in the north losing the battle, losing the kingdom, and at the very same time, chapter 30, David is winning down in the south. That is ironic. It's ironic, isn't it, that Saul raises up the ghost of Samuel to find out what he ought to do when he never listened to a word Samuel said when he was alive. Isn't that ironic? We see stories where Saul is getting intel. He has feelers out and people giving him input where David is, but David has insight from God. God wasn't speaking to Saul, and intel is no competition for the Word of God. There, back in the beginning of the book, there's the story of the Philistine god Dagon, and they put the Ark of the Covenant right there, and Dagon falls flat on his face. Now, isn't it ironic that a powerful god needs to be picked up in the morning? And then, and then the next morning he's fallen again and his hands have fallen off. He's lost all, all, the whole fiction of power is lost. Deeply ironic. And these things happen again and again and again throughout the book. It shows the divine artistry behind these stories. There's also some amazing foreshadowing in these stories. Uh, a few times we're told that Saul would take off his garments he even takes off his armor and tries to put it on David, the royal armor. How interesting. It wasn't time yet for David to become king, and he can't fit into it anyway. Uh, but that's a, a little foreshadowing of Saul's going to pass off the scene. Um, there's times where Saul will take off his garments either to, to disguise himself, and of course the stories end with Saul's royal garments being ripped off of him and taken as spoils of war. There's even other foreshadowings that go across the pages of Scripture. At the beginning of the book, Hannah is praying desperately for God to give her a child, and there's a miraculous answer to prayer, and she gives birth to the son Samuel to have such an impact in the world. And in her prayer of thanks, she, gives, she utters words which are picked up by Mary, who has the most miraculous birth many centuries later. We saw last week how Saul... He is killed and his body is disgraced, hung up for public display. And it foreshadows, uh, by way of contrast, our Lord Jesus, who was also lifted up and put on display. But, oh, what a difference between them. Well, these are some of the reasons we've been studying Samuel. They are part of the Bible's mainline story, and it's foundational to understanding God's earthly kingdom plan and all the richness that entails. What we've learned so far, well, I'll, I'll remind you something I shared in the introductory lesson, and I've reiterated again and again, that this book, First and Second Samuel, is really one book originally. There is a prophetic tradition behind that book. And by that, I don't mean that it's prophecies about the future, but I mean that the book is composed by prophets, prophets who are giving us an inspired understanding of this key period in Israel's past. First and Second Samuel, originally one book, somewhere between the time of the Testaments, it was split up into two because it was so big, it was hard to get scrolls that large. Um, 
the book written by a prophet, we don't know in particular who, but uh, Samuel did not write all of it. He, he dies before the first part's done, doesn't he? I know he was a prophet, but he didn't write it all in advance. You know. Uh, in fact, the, book of, the books of Samuel cover a span of 140 years. The first seven chapters cover 60 years from the birth of Samuel um, until the, uh, the rise of Saul. And then beginning in chapter 8, running to the uh, end of 1 Samuel is a span of 40 years. And in the middle of that, David begins to rise. Uh, Saul is trying to squash him, play whack-a-mole with him. But after Saul is gone, then what we call 2 Samuel will be another period of 40 years as David reigns on the throne. So there is a Jewish tradition which says that Samuel wrote part of 1 Samuel, that there were records, and then they were compiled by other prophets like Nathan and Gad. It's possible that this is what happened, although we can't be for certain. But this is uh, one long book, which is really focused on what God does through David. So much of 1 Samuel is really an introduction uh, to David. So the basic flow of the book, this is part of a visual outline chart of the book, verses uh, or chapters 1 through 14 is really a long prelude, a long introduction to this. It begins with the rise of Samuel, who is light in the midst of spiritual darkness. That's the first seven verses, first seven chapters. And then chapters 8 through 14 is about the rise and fall of Saul. Though Saul is a foil, a disappointment, a failure, he at least introduces into the experience of the nation what it's like to have a king. Then the second half of 1 Samuel is where the introduction of David. As David, beginning in chapter 15, begins to rise in a, in, on the radar at, at the same time that Saul begins to fall. And then the last several chapters, chapters 28 to 31, are Saul's demise and David's victory. By the way, if you're interested in a fuller version of the visual, a visual outline chart of the, the two books, there are some copies that are available uh, in the lobby, and you can pick one of those up as you leave today. Now I'm going to begin to review what we did week by week, uh, the main points of the messages. And uh, as I, I tried and tried and tried to trim and trim and trim, but I'm going to begin this, uh, this Lord's Day, and the Lord willing, next week we'll conclude uh, this review. So the first 14 chapters are a prelude to the Davidic dynasty, where we see the roles of Samuel and David introduced. And of course, Samuel is the one that we're first introduced to. And really, before we're introduced to Samuel, we're introduced to his mother. And so you might remember, as we studied 1 Samuel, it was really chapters 1 and 2 about Hannah's song and Mary's shadow. And I had you turn to 1 Samuel 2, and we'll read just a portion of that uh, in a moment. But Hannah's song of, of celebration, which is uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10 uh, invites us to celebrate God's deliverance and to anticipate the fullness of his kingdom to come. Uh, if you look with me at chapter 2, verse 1, then Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth speaks boldly against my enemies. 
because I rejoice in your salvation. Look again with me now at that 10th verse. Those who contend with the Lord will be shattered. Against them he will thunder in the heavens. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth and he will give strength to his king. And he will exalt the horn of his anointed. Uh, All of this poem that Hannah writes is a hymn of thanks for God answering her prayer to give her a son. It opens up with her story as this desperate woman badly wanting a child in the midst of a decrepit nation where the spiritual leadership is just terrible. I mean, Eli, the high priest in chapter 1, is so unfamiliar with fervent prayer that when he sees Hannah praying, he assumes she's drunk. And it doesn't bode well for the spiritual leadership of the nation when that's what they think is going on. But in the midst of all that is a God who hears and answers prayer. And Hannah gets some inkling that not only is God being good to her, but God is being good to the nation by giving her that boy, Samuel. Samuel will not be a king, but he will be a kingmaker. Mary our mother of our Lord, who will have the most miraculous birth story of all in the scripture, she will quote from Hannah's prayer when she utters her famous Magnificat in Luke chapter 2. This prayer of thanks from Hannah is a seed plot for the garden of the gospel. And what happened with Hannah is part of our gospel heritage because it is her son who opens it up, the kingdom for the line of David. Well, we came to the third chapter and we studied about the renewal of God's word. Samuel's rise to be a prophet showcases the importance of God's word and the advancement of his kingdom. The story in chapter 3 begins with verse 1. Now the boy Samuel was ministering to the Lord before Eli, and the word from the Lord was rare in those days. Visions were infrequent. It is a spiritually dismal time. They are on the edge of what had been the centuries of darkness covered by the book of Judges. God has been mostly silent for centuries. And his refusal to speak is directly linked to Israel's failure to listen. Now in our day, the silence of God is due to our ignoring what God has already said. God's word has been written and yet it is so seldom read. But here is someone ready to listen, ready to do, ready to obey, and God calls Samuel as a young boy and prepares him for great things ahead. Then in chapter 4, there's a shift away from Samuel himself to what God is happening in the nation as a whole. And We studied about how the Ark of the Covenant was taken away in a message called, Gone Goes the Glory. The God of the ark, though, proved himself to be a single-handed conqueror who is committed to his glorious plan. You know, if if the symbol of God's presence in your midst, the ark of the covenant, is stolen, what does that say about the future of your nation? And that's what happens for the Israelites. The Philistines steal the ark of the covenant after it was stupidly brought out in the war like some sort of a magic token. They take it to their temples and they put it there. Look with me, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Chapter 5, verses 2 and 3. Then the Philistines took the ark of God and brought it into the house of Dagon and set it by Dagon. 
When the Ashdodites arose early in the next morning, behold, Dagon had fallen on his face to the ground before the ark of the Lord. So they took Dagon and set him up in his place again. Poor little God. These stories show how even when God's earthly kingdom seems to be a mess, he is still king over it all. He is able to care for himself with no thanks to his people. He is able to miraculously and sovereignly bring the ark back to a place of safety without any Israelites doing anything. Uh, the nation was a mess, and there was a void of human leadership, but God, you see, was still king. He's the ultimate king in the book. God calls us to be involved in his kingdom purposes, but beloved, remember this, in the end, the kingdom of our Lord Jesus rises and falls with him, not with us. All praise be to him. So in these first seven chapters, and chapters uh, four, five, six, and seven, continue the story of the, the uh, loss particularly 5 through 7, are uh, about the, the, the uh, ark and its victory. Uh, hands off the idol was another lesson we learned uh, from this. Uh, as though the glory had departed from Israel for a while, uh, God, the glorious one, was still able to bring about amazing victory. And then in the 8th chapter, we came to uh, uh, the establishment of the kingdom as we have the rise of and fall of Saul. Kingship is introduced in this eighth chapter. Israel is impatient and they are insistent that they have an earthly king, that we might be like the other nations around about us. And Israel's insistence on a king at this point in their history was too early. That was one of the problems. And what they wanted was too earthy. It exposed their lack of trust in God's kingdom plan. In chapter 8, verse 7, chapter 8, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you. For they have not rejected you, they have rejected me from being king over them. They couldn't wait. If, if Israel had just waited 40 years, they would have had David. But no, no, they couldn't wait. They needed it now. They needed to change. When we lean on our own understanding like Israel did, when we seek our own solutions apart from God and God's plan, what a mess we make. So uh, Saul is introduced as the, uh, in the next story, Chapter 9, the awkward rise of Saul. Chapters 9 and 10, we called that study Donkey King. <laughs> because the very first story of Saul is he's awkwardly running around trying to find his father's donkeys. Now, they're, they're not all that hard to find. I mean, hee-haw, I mean, they, they make a, a lot of noise. And it's kind of silly in the way the story presents him. But here is this uh, hapless character, and God tells Samuel, he's the one. Saul's clumsy climb into kingship shows how our sovereign God is Lord over all of our happenings. Saul was the kind of leader that Israel wanted, and he, he looked the part. He's tall and handsome, but 
this first story shows how aimless he could be. It was a foreshadowing of what they were going to get in Saul. God makes him, though, the man of the moment. He is, by means of God condescending, uh, the man that God's choosing for this time. And chapter 10, verses 6 and 7, tell us how God was, in some sense, with him. Chapter 10, verse 6, Then the Spirit of the Lord will come upon you mightily, and you shall prophesy with them and be changed into another man. And it shall be when these signs come to you, do for yourself what the occasion requires, for God is with you. This is Samuel telling Saul how he can be certain that he, the guy who can't even shepherd donkeys, is going to be enabled to lead the nation at least for a time. He will not lead the nation very far. And he will not lead the nation very well, but he will be at least a placeholder. He will be the one to introduce to the nation what kingship could be and also what it shouldn't be. In the 11th chapter, there's a story of renewing the kingdom. This was the high point of Saul's leadership in chapter 11. You can turn uh, to verses 14 and 15, which we'll read in a moment. God used Saul to liberate the Israelites from the wicked king in the east called Nahash. His name, Nahash, uh, the Ammonite king, Nahash means serpent, and he was a snake. Saul faced down the snake who had annihilated a lot of the eastern tribes. He liberates the city of Jabesh-Gilead and showed in a glorious moment what a God-empowered Messiah could do. God's liberation of Israel through Saul shows how his kingdom plan has power to bring peace to his people. He brought some short-term liberation, and he's a little glimpse of the kind of deliverance that a Messiah can bring. We have, you know, a glorious Savior who has defeated the greatest serpent of all. And in this story of Saul, we see a little glimpse of it. Chapter 11, verses 14 to 15. Then Samuel said to the people after all of these events, Come and let us go to Gilgal and renew the kingdom there. So all the people went to Gilgal, and there they made Saul king before the Lord in Gilgal. They offered sacrifices of peace offerings before the Lord, and there Saul and all his men, the men of Israel, rejoiced greatly. And that's as good as it gets with Saul. It was a high point but it will not last long. And, 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 uh, uh, and Samuel knows it, and the screen says we're in chapter 8, but actually we're in chapter 12. Behold your king. Here Samuel calls the nation and says, now you wanted a king, and he's done some good for you. Now take a good look at him. Look at now with me in the 13th verse. Now therefore, here is the king whom you've chosen, whom you've asked for, and behold, the Lord has set a king over you. Samuel's last great speech is found in this chapter. Take a good look at him now. You got what you wanted. Did you want the right thing? Don't you want the king's leadership, the king of heaven instead? Take good note what you got. The spotty light of Saul casts a larger shadow for Christ, who will be the ultimate king who never disappoints. 
Samuel hints to them in this chapter that there's going to be some disappointment with what they've gotten. In fact, then we come to chapters 13 and 14 and a message I called Kingdom Crumb, <laughs> the fall of Saul. Saul's fall from grace shows how, how twisted obedience can never move us forward in God's kingdom plan. This is the story where he was told to go to uh, fight and win and then wait for seven days and we'll have a sacrifice. And Saul sort of obeys halfway. It's, there are mixed results. And then he doesn't wait. He's impatient. He wants to do things his own way. And Samuel announces to him in chapter 13, verse 14, look at that, the Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart. There is someone else, Saul, that God has set his heart upon. You are not going to have a dynasty. In the next chapter, chapter 14, Chronicles, Saul's mixed results in war against the Philistines and his foolish leadership telling his soldiers, for instance, that they can't eat after having fought this gruesome battle. No, we have to go home and somber fasting. It, it's just utter foolishness. And his son, Jonathan, doesn't know about this foolish order. And he, he, he eats some food and someone snitches on him and he's almost killed. And it's just, it's failed leadership. It's foolish leadership. The fall of Saul had already begun. But then in that 15th chapter um, is where things really begin to turn, where David is going to be introduced to us very soon. Uh, in this 15th chapter, Saul's disobedience is on greater display, and, and this chapter teaches it is better to obey, that righteousness is more important than ritual. Saul has a, a, a phony piety. You know, he, he's told to go fight against the Amalekites, and he does. He was told to destroy all the Amalekites, and he doesn't quite. And, and then he brings back these sheep and oxen and to make a sacrifice, which he's not supposed to do. He has a phony piety. He's trying to impress God, but he's not obeying God. There's a test that is presented to him as God's anointed, and he fails. And his failure of this test opens up the way for a better Messiah. Saul the terrible is tested here. He killed many, he slaughtered many, but he fails the test. And yet he goes about bragging about all that he's done and before he meets up with Samuel in the middle of this chapter we're told that he actually erects a monument for himself. He erects a monument for himself. Saul the, 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 the disobedient immortalizes his partial obedience. And when Samuel meets up with him and asks him, what is all this bleeding of the sheep? Why didn't you follow the voice of the Lord your God? He says to him very famously in verses 22 to 23, Samuel said, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than to sacrifice, and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry. 
because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. There is the sobering prophecy which will hang over all the rest of the book. Saul's time is coming to an end. Someone else will be in his place. God is not impressed by our false piety. He sees through us, through our motives, through all of our intentions, through all of our words. It is better to obey than to give God bogus acts of worship. And then the last chapter that we'll review this morning in chapter 16 is where David himself is introduced. Here is the one on whom God has set his heart. God sees the heart. The Lord tells Samuel in this verse, it's time to go find the next king. And Samuel is mourning about Saul. He feels terribly about him, but it's not time to just sit around and mope. It's time to be active. And he sends him to not the tribe of Benjamin, where Saul came from, but to the tribe of Judah, to the city of Bethlehem, to the house of Jesse. And uh, Samuel, of course, assumes that it's going to be the, the, the oldest, the firstborn of the family. But in this story, you know how it goes. Uh, the boys of Jesse are paraded in front of him, and God rejects the firstborn, something that had happened many times in the book of Genesis. The firstborn is often not the one that God chooses. God bypasses the firstborn and the nextborns, too. And finally, way down at the bottom of the line is this runt of a guy, David. Way down the line in people's thinking. But he's just the one that God had set his heart upon. Look at verse 7. The Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. There was a work of grace already going on within David's heart that made him the kind of man suited for the work that was set before him. Israel, when they looked at Saul, could just see how tall he was, how kingly he looked. Uh, they didn't realize that even though God had changed his personality and enabled him, he was not a man with a transformed heart. But this man, this young man, David, has a heart ready to do and obey God's word. God sees the heart. And that is a vital lesson we need to remember. Well, this is a good spot for us to stop and we will conclude the review next week. But we're seeing, as we go through this, that the books of Samuel are revealing how God's ancient promise plan is transforming his chosen people into a kingdom. Next time, we'll review more about David's rise and Saul's decline and the ultimate victory God gives to David as he brings him to the throne. As we conclude today, I bring us back to the thought that we had at the beginning of our study, how we live in a land that has no king, no royal traditions, we have no Buckingham Palace, and we like it that way, thank you very much. 
If we don't like our leaders, we can mount up our voices and vote them out when the time comes, if we'd actually get around to doing it. But as Christians, we must never forget that we are dual citizens. We are subjects of the realm, but not of QE2s. It is the realm of realms of which we are a part, and we serve the King of Kings. He is currently seated with his Father in heaven, and soon and suddenly he will come and reign on the earth. And until then, we are called to be faithful servants of the King who know that he looks upon the heart in all that we do for his name's sake. If you've never come to know him, this good king who is so worthy, who has given so much, this one who is so holy and yet so gracious and so powerful, oh, the gospel calls you to receive him and believe him and to find your place in his kingdom plan. It is through faith in Jesus Christ and trusting him alone that you find yourself in the in the richness of the promises of the kingdom, the fullness of which is yet to come. Would you join me, please, in a closing word of prayer? Our Father, we thank you that you have put us into a kingdom. You have brought us out of the kingdom of darkness and into the glorious light of the kingdom of your dear Son. There is a reign which has begun within our hearts as King Jesus rules and reigns. And yet there is a a glorious coming of the kingdom in its fullness. And we want to be busy about getting ready for the king and helping others to be ready for the king. Help us to remember that we are people under orders. We are people who are in covenant with our Lord. And may the grace which has brought us to know you continue to guide us and direct us into the fullness of the knowledge of Christ. Bless to our hearts the review of these chapters and lessons we've had so far, and may we walk in the light of your word this week, we pray in Jesus' name.